Hi, and welcome to Sisters Love Podcast. My name is Shelly. And my name is Shannon. We are sisters and we talk about what we love to watch, love to learn, love to love, love to read. Well, you get the idea. Today, we are going to talk about movies that focus on new beginnings. In honor of the new year, which I know we all hope will be better than the last one, we are going to discuss our selection of movies that all have a theme on starting over. No matter who you are or where you are from, each of us experiences at least one moment in life from which we have to recover and move on. It is a common experience that ties all of humanity together. It's the same instinct that causes some people to make New Year's resolutions. We want to be a better version of ourselves than we were the year before. Hopefully, our listeners are better than I am at keeping their resolutions, since I've had the same one for about 20 years and experienced varying levels of success each year. And I use the term success very loosely. Fortunately, The protagonists of most of our films today are better at making changes than I am. First, we have Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, released in 1974. It follows Alice, played by Ellen Bernstein, after her husband's death. She sells everything they own and heads west with her son, from New Mexico to Monterey, so she can pursue her dream of becoming a singer. The trip does not go as planned. I did not enjoy this movie. It is directed by Martin Scorsese, whose style often creates unique atmospheres in movies, and normally I like them a lot, but this one just did not translate for me. In addition to Bernstein, there is also Harvey Keitel and Chris Christopherson. And don't forget a young Jodie Foster in a small role. This was a good catch. She was very young, and I didn't even recognize her. I love all of these actors, and yet in the movie, their acting seemed bad, and I don't think any of them are bad actors. I watched this one before you and couldn't quite find the words to describe its weird feeling, but I think you nailed it. I said it feels a bit like a dream. I think part of that stems from the fact that Alice herself seems to lack grounding in a profound way. She has a child, but insists on being a singer, which is clearly not a viable career choice for her. She leaves her son alone in a motel room first when she finds a low-paying job as a lounge singer and continues to leave him alone when she starts an affair with Harvey Keitel. I didn't find the acting bad, I just thought all the characters were so unlikable. Why would I want to spend an entire movie with any of them? You know that I don't have a problem with unlikable protagonists, but every single character made me either want to slap them or call the cops. And what was up with the beginning of the movie, with the flashbacks to Alice as a child? This was the one scene in the movie that I really enjoyed. Unfortunately, it was set apart from anything in the rest of the film. The opening sequence felt like a gothic Wizard of Oz. Now that is a movie I am very interested in seeing. 
I didn't dislike the movie quite as much as you did, but I won't be putting it on my rewatch list. It was an odd movie in the Scorsese canon. That said, I did think it had the modern sensibility of many of the best movies of the 1970s and shared a grittiness with other Scorsese films. Despite the appearance of a happy ending, I'm not convinced things are going to work out well for Alice long term. Nothing in her behavior indicates that she's truly made any meaningful changes. I think the best part of this movie is its spinoff, the television network comedy Alice, starring Linda Lavin. I was so young that I have no idea if the show was any good, but it was one of my favorite childhood shows. Needless to say, it was very different than the tone of the film. Next, we have Wild, released in 2014, based on the memoir Wild from Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail by Cheryl Strayed. This movie follows Strayed, played by Reese Witherspoon, as she hikes along the PCT, an 1,100-mile trail from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to the Bridge of the Gods on the Columbia River between Oregon and Washington. Strayed was inspired to go on this journey after the death of her mother and her reaction to grief of drug abuse and promiscuity. As she states in the film, she is going to walk back to the woman her mother raised. I love this movie. Strayed used the solitary hike as a time to be alone with her thoughts and process her emotions. The journey was a brave undertaking and the resulting transformation she experienced is inspiring. I read the book and loved it, and I love the movie as well. It's a very faithful adaptation. One thing that makes it different from a lot of these kind of memoirs is that unlike Eat, Pray, Love, for example, Stray didn't have a book contract or even an idea to write about the experience prior to or even shortly after the hike. She decided to write her memoir 10 years later and she did not shy away from discussing the worst aspects of her behavior pre-trek. Strayed specifically sent the memoir to Reese Witherspoon, thinking she was the only actress who could play her. I love Laura Dern as Strayed's mom, too. The line the movie ends on is perfect. My life, like all lives, mysterious, irrevocable, sacred, so very close. So very present, so very belonging to me. How wild it was to let it be. I love that she chose Strayed as her last name following her divorce. At the time, I believe it was a reference to how far she'd strayed from who she wanted to be. But ultimately, straying from the beaten path as she did hiking the Pacific Crest Trail brought her back to who she really was. Next, we have Silver Linings Playbook, released in 2012. The movie follows Pat, played by Bradley Cooper, as he is released from his stay at a psychiatric hospital. He was admitted eight months previously after almost beating to death the guy he found in the shower with his wife. While this seems perfectly legitimate, it is clear that Pat struggles with mental health issues beyond this one incident. He is hyper-focused on recovery with the goal of getting his wife back, ignoring that she has sold the house and moved on. Meanwhile, Tiffany, played by Jennifer Lawrence, is recovering from the sudden death of her husband. 
She also struggles with mental health issues beyond her grief. Her coping mechanism of promiscuity has led to job loss and issues of judgment from her family. When Tiffany and Pat meet, they strike a deal. She will help him get a letter to his wife, sidestepping his restraining order, and he will help her as her partner in an upcoming dance competition. Together, they both help each other heal and find a new normal in a world that is foreign to them from their previous lives. I absolutely love this movie and have watched it countless times prior to my viewing for this episode. The focus on people that are actually human, imperfect, and searching for how to survive when life throws them the unexpected is so refreshing and relatable. The performances by Cooper and Lawrence are amazing, as are the performances by Robert De Niro as Pat's dad and Chris Tucker as Pat's friend from the psychiatric hospital, along with everyone else in the film. I love this movie, too. I'm also a huge, huge fan of Jackie Weaver as Pat's mom, Dolores. It's even more amazing when you realize she's Australian. There are funny and touching scenes throughout the film. The entire family is obsessed with the Philadelphia Eagles, and Pat's dad, Patricio, decides that Tiffany is bringing the Eagles bad juju. She proceeds to inventory the winning scores for the Eagles and other Philly sports teams while Pat practices with her and how things have gone poorly for the Eagles when he missed practice. The looks on everyone's faces are priceless. The big finale of the movie involves a parlay, which is a two-part bet that Patricio makes with his friend Randy for virtually everything Patricio has. The Eagles have to beat the Cowboys, and Pat Jr. and Tiffany must get a 5 out of 10 in the dance competition. One of my favorite scenes in the whole film is how when it's time for the big lift during their dance number, they totally whiff it. I adore how they play exactly the opposite of what you'd expect. Two of the most prominent focuses of moving on in this film are becoming aware of when you are stuck in a pattern of behavior because it is all you know, and loving yourself, flaws and all. One of Pat's ways of working through his problems is focusing on silver linings, hence the name of the movie. At one point, Pat explains... This is what I learned at the hospital. You have to do everything you can. You have to work your hardest. And if you do, if you stay positive, you have a shot at a silver lining. Sometimes focusing on the positive is the only thing that gets you through the hard times. I know I certainly have used this method for pushing forward more than once. Next, we have Martha Marcy May Marlene, released in 2011. The story follows Martha, played by Elizabeth Olsen, as she escapes a cult and tries to acclimate to living a normal life with her sister Lucy, played by Sarah Paulson, and Lucy's husband, Ted, played by Hugh Dancy. This was a very interesting movie. It was told as somewhat of a thriller. The cult from which Martha escaped was very possessive of its members, and the leader, Patrick, had chosen Martha, known as Marcy May in the cult, as his favorite. Is the cult attempting to hunt Martha down to return her to the homestead in the Catskills? Or is it just in her head, a product of the abuse she suffered while under Patrick's thumb? 
I think it's safe to say that it isn't necessarily a plus to be a cult leader's favorite. The film is brutal, but effective. And I appreciated the complex relationship that Martha has with her sister. Lucy clearly feels guilty for what she perceives as not being there for Martha after their mother died, and she's torn between trying to make up for it or looking out for her marriage. Elizabeth Olsen's performance was superb as Martha. You truly felt the character's confusion, desperation, and desire to put her experiences behind her while also struggling to move past her conditioning from the cult. She really was excellent. The movie is intentionally ambiguous. I'm not always on board with this as an artistic choice, but I thought it worked very well for the film. In Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene and the Art of the Ambiguous Movie Ending, Anne Hornaday quotes Elizabeth Olsen. The movie begins in a transition from one place to another, and it ends in transition from one place to another. We go to the movies because we want to see wrapped up stories, but our whole lives are nothing but transitions. People don't want to accept it on screen, but that's how we are every day. Next, we have Legally Blonde, released in 2001. This movie follows Elle Woods, played by Reese Witherspoon, as she sets off for law school, initially motivated by the sole desire to get her boyfriend Warner back. Warner broke up with Elle because he was going to Harvard Law and she wasn't serious enough for his pictured feature. Elle is a 4.0 student in fashion merchandising, head of her sorority, from Bel Air, and blonde. When she determines that the kind of woman Warner wants is a fellow law student, she has the laser focus of getting into Harvard Law to prove to Warner that she is worthy. Once she accomplishes this goal and realizes that Warner still doesn't want her, her motivations change. Now she is going to be successful at law school for herself and, quote, prove how valuable Elwood's can be. Just in case you were wondering, no one likes Warner. No, no, they do not. I like how this movie isn't just about the transformation of Elle. Selma Blair plays Vivian Kensington, who Elle meets at Harvard. Vivian is a different kind of mean girl. Smart, driven, from the proper background, and now Warner's fiancé. At first, she takes delight in being casually cruel to Elle, but they bond over sexism, and she comes to see that there's more to Elle than meets the eye. This movie is yet another example of how we often set off with one goal in mind and end up on a completely different path one that is more fulfilling and life-affirming than the first, but we would not have found without the original motivation to travel a certain metaphorical road. I find this experience extremely relatable, as I'm sure many do. This movie is a trifle, but it's fun and uplifting. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal about the miniseries Big Little Lies, in which Witherspoon stars and also produced, she said... At least once a week, I have a woman come up to me and say, I went to law school because of Legally Blonde. I also love the trivia that Tony Basil choreographed the bend and snap sequence. For those of you who may not know, she sang the one-hit wonder Mickey in the 1980s. 
I fell down a legally blonde internet rabbit hole and found out that Witherspoon's production company, Hello Sunshine, will be producing Legally Blonde 3. Even more exciting, Mindy Kaling is writing the script with Dan Gore, creator of one of my all-time favorite comfort watches, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I will definitely be there with bells on. Finally, we have Fried Green Tomatoes, released in 1991. I absolutely love this movie. It follows the story of Iggy Threadgood, played by Mary Stewart Masterson, and Ruth Jameson, played by Mary Louise Parker, in 1920s Whistlestop, Alabama, as told by Ninny Threadgood, played by Jessica Tandy, to Evelyn Couch, played by Kathy Bates. Imogen, or Iggy, was a rebellious young child, and she first starts over after the death of her older brother and best friend, Buddy. Buddy's ex-girlfriend, Ruth, helps Iggy through her grief, and they become very close, until Ruth marries Frank Bennett and moves away. Frank is an abusive, racist piece of human garbage, and as soon as Ruth's mother passes, she writes to Iggy, who does not hesitate to come and rescue her. Iggy is then pivotal in helping Ruth start over from her marriage. Meanwhile, Evelyn is inspired by Ninny's stories and begins to make positive changes in her own life, not to mention the murder mystery of Frank Bennett. This movie has a little bit of everything. This movie hits you right in the feels. It is definitely a little emotionally manipulative in a few places, but overall, it's like a plate of fresh cornbread with heaps of butter. Delightful and full of warmth. I am such a huge Jessica Tandy fan. She was spectacular as Ninny, but the entire cast is impressive. I also applaud your description of Frank. We can't really say what we'd say about him if we weren't being recorded. With the exception of possible human barbecue, it could also be a foodie movie. I remember when I first saw this, I'd never heard of fried green tomatoes, I remedied that with haste, and they are, in fact, delicious. There are many representations of new beginnings in this film, from Iggy grieving her brother, to Ruth escaping her husband, and Evelyn's transformation thanks to these stories. This is a story about people and what they mean to each other, which naturally includes the moments in life from which they have to recover in order to move on. The last lines of the movie sum this up well. Ninny is reflecting on Whistle Stop and says, It was never more than just a little knockabout place, but now that I look back on it, when that cafe closed, the heart of the town just stopped beating. It's funny how a little place like this brought so many people together. I'm also crazy about this quote, when Ninny is expressing her appreciation for Evelyn. You reminded me of what the most important thing in life is. You know what I think it is? Friends. Best friends. Ninny's right. And sometimes you get lucky, and those friends are already in your family. Aw, shucks. I love you. I love you too. We hoped you enjoyed our episode. Please join us next week when we review our top three books of 2020, including... Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keith, 
The Bone Shard Daughter by Andrea Stewart, and The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, in case you want to read before you listen. We love suggestions, so don't hesitate to let us know if you have ideas for future episodes. Email us at contact at sistersLovePodcast.com. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. The Sisters Love Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Shelley Clark and Shannon Kelly. That's us. us. Music by Sean Mullins. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, keep finding things you love, especially each other. Thank you.